Matthew chapter 5, second paragraph of, of Jesus' most uh, famous sermon. Um, I told you last week that this is uh, in the timeline of Jesus' life. This is his most popular moment. Everywhere Jesus is going, it tells us, the writer tells us, Matthew in in chapter 4, is that he is healing all diseases and infirmities. Uh, He is extremely um, popular at this point. And the reason why is because of blessing. I told you that last week. If you want to capture an idea of what, what people are perceiving Jesus to represent, he represents blessing. And so everywhere he goes, he's touching and healing and he's saying things that have never been said before in a way that no one's ever said them with authority. That's what the text tells us. Like he wrote these words, like these are his thoughts. And so people are really enamored with it. And crowds are gathering and following him, hoping for a touch, hoping for their own miracle. And I would too, to be honest with you. I'm I'm assuming the, the reputation just grew and grew and someone knew someone who had been with Jesus. And it's all good. And so here they are crowding around Jesus, wanting their own blessing. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, he starts to teach. And what he teaches on is the idea of blessing. And what he does is totally shocking. Because he takes what people normally think about blessing, which is totally popular in I did, the health, wealth thing in our culture, and he spins it all upside down. And he tells people that joy, happiness, and blessing comes completely different, the opposite of what you would normally naturally perceive. He tells us real clearly that it's not just getting things or it's not just your health. It's not freedom from trouble. In fact, it comes through brokenness and selflessness. Nobody signs up for that instinctively. And so Jesus blows their mind with phrases like this. And starting in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure of heart and the peacemakers. And those, as ridiculous as it might sound, are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here Jesus deals with the issue. And the issue is this. You want blessing? You really do? You want joy, you want happiness, happiness that lasts, then the destination of your joy and happiness isn't where the world says or where your heart heart is inclined to go. True happiness comes through realizing something about yourself. And honesty, when you look inside, it is saying that I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God that sorts out the distance that exists between his expectation and his character and his holiness and my sin and need. Okay, and so here's what Jesus says right at the beginning. You want happiness, real happiness, something has to happen in that relationship. And it starts by recognizing that you're spiritually broke. And spiritually broke people are sad about their sin. They mourn, they grieve over these things that have created the distance and the separation between God and man. These are people who turn to humility They long to be with Jesus and they long to be like Jesus and they think more about other people than themselves. That's kind of where we went last week. Today we are looking at another very familiar passage in verses 13 through 16 where Jesus refers to us, and us, I mean Christians, and I'll define that in a second because it needs a little help, as salt and light. Um, How many of you in here have actually heard a sermon from this paragraph in the scriptures about salt and light? I thought about asking you to raise your hand for the number of times you've heard a sermon, but we'd be doing exercises, and that might be good for some of us. But either way, I know all of us have been just inundated with thoughts about church being salt and light. So I'm not confused that you've probably heard many of these things before, but I have prayed that God would make a point. 
Because Jesus, the one who's turned the world upside down, not only in what he says will bring joy and happiness, the one who turns your life upside down to make it right side up, that Jesus says something about how we should live, okay? And it really does crowd us compared to the version of Christianity we, we live with right now. So it makes a perfect sense, by the way, that this section would follow the Beatitudes, Because the people who live, like Jesus suggests, in the very opening statements of this sermon, if people who are broken and selfless and humble and about other people, here's the reality, they stick out. The world will notice these people. It uh, It will be so obvious that those people, those broken people, those humble people will make a difference in the place that they live. So it makes sense that it follows. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a former pastor, he died some 35 years ago, um, from England wrote this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts the world. Isn't that interesting? Sinclair Ferguson, another minister, said this, the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, but its power and its influence is visible only in the sphere in which the world least expects to see them, in the poor in spirit, among those who mourn over the sin, and in the persecuted community of the followers of Jesus Christ. No one, no one would see that list as influential but Jesus. Small people make a difference. Humble people make a difference. Broken people make a difference. Persecuted people make a difference. That's what those writers say, and I think that's what Jesus says here. Last week, we ended with this section. In fact, we didn't deal much with it. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, this will be an outcome for following him. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The church, and and by that I have to define it, it is not that you go to church It's not that you're somewhat okay with the church or interested in some of its subjects. The church, the legitimate bride of Jesus, people who have recognized their need and run to God's only solution for our sin, coming by faith to Christ alone, that when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sin was transferred to him. He bore all the weight of God's wrath and he gives you his righteousness. The only way we stand is through the work of Jesus and through his righteousness. Make sense? Your confession in that thought is what makes a Christian, period. As much as there are a variety of of definitions out there, that's what I mean. The church, those people, believers are to be, are, are so different in this world as we live that the world won't tolerate us. That's what Jesus says in verses 10 and 11. And, and here's why. Because the world sees the church and God's kingdom as a threat to their lifestyle. Crowds them. Makes them uncomfortable. Nobody likes conviction, right? And so it tries to, to ruin it. And so if that's how it is, if Jesus says, here's what happens with broken people who live influentially out in the world, the world's going to push back on that in you. If that's how it is, then here's some questions I think we need to answer, and I think that Jesus does in this short section. How are believers supposed to live in that kind of world with that kind of opposition? What are we, what are we supposed to do? If all we're trying to do is believe and understand and submit to the lordship of Jesus and the world hates us because of it, what are, what are we supposed to do in that climate? How, how can we make a, a real difference? That's what these four verses are all about, okay? And, and Jesus is real clear 
in a very familiar way to you, and, and so I'm praying for some intervention here. The Holy Spirit would do something new with this text in your heart. So here, let's do what we always do. Let's read it, and let's stop and ask for the Holy Spirit to uh, deal with this text in our lives, can we? All right, let's pick it up, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we do pray for help. There's so many sets of ears in this room from different perspectives. Some understand a lot of what I say. Some don't understand much. Some will enjoy what is said. Some will not. God, I pray for protection. One, that you wouldn't let me say anything that you haven't said. And I pray the other is that your people, the church, Christians, would take these words and think of these words and respond to these words as they really are, the words of Jesus, our Savior. We pray for that help in his name. Amen. Right here in this short little paragraph, Jesus summarized what it means to be a Christian by two metaphors. If you ever want to know, what, is it, what does it really mean for us to go and live this thing out? Here's what he does. He starts out with the first one of using the analogy of salt, which we've all heard before. You are the salt the salt of, of the earth. I want you to notice a couple of phrases or just a couple of words in the very beginning. You see the very first word in this paragraph, you? Um, it is a plural use of that word. Now, I grew up in Texas, okay? That's why I'm a Cowboys fan. I come by it honestly, so don't judge me, all right? Um, lived there from 1963 to about 1973. So in 10 years, I had a great accent, all right? You're a young man, you get it. And there was a word we used a lot down south for people. Y'all, y'all. And I, you didn't think about it when you lived there, but it would sound odd now if I was referring to you as y'all, but that's exactly what Jesus does in this one word. He's looking at the church and saying, y'all, all of you. And I want you to notice the second word, are. This is not just minutia. This is important to understanding what he's saying. The word are is not a command. It's not an imperative, something to do. This is not Jesus saying to the church, okay, go and be salt today. Put on your daytime or things to do, be salt. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is an indicative statement, a statement of fact. Jesus is saying, you all, y'all are salt. Deal with it. That's what he's saying. That's what you are. Everyone that is a Christian who follows Jesus is salt. Now, I probably read, and I don't want to exaggerate too much, 100 to 200 pages a week in some of these commentaries. And there's some brilliant men who have just sliced and diced this thought to unbelievable depths, right? There are people who have taken the idea of salt and have, have drawn their notes around everything that salt could ever possibly do. All the properties of salt and effects of salt. And I, I'm certain there's so many great like lessons in that, right? So salt preserves, you know. You know, salted meat, you know, you preserve it, it penetrates things, it purifies things, it brings health to things, it promotes thirst, it, it produces change, it was used in the sacrifice system, it was very valuable. I'm, I'm absolutely certain those are all great little lines to, to look at salt. And I suppose we could do a sermon from that perspective. 
Um, and I'm certain that it somewhat represents how Christians are to be in this world. But to me, what Jesus means to say isn't very difficult to figure out. And, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what he's trying to say or what he's referring to. Look at verse 13 again. But if the salt has lost its what? What is he referring to? No, no trick. Taste. Flavor. Let's use another idea. Influence. Like how a person perceives us, right? That's what he's referring to. The flavor we Christians bring to this world, our influence. So let me illustrate it this way. I, I heard this a long time ago, but I think it helps. Let's use the idea of soup to describe the church. You know, I'm a big connoisseur of a good soup, um, and soup with a lot of salt is good. I don't, if you're a health nut, don't judge me, okay? Salt is good, as far as I can tell. But if you, got a, if you got a cup of soup and it's all together and it's all right and well salted, you, it, you would just go, this is really good soup. It's very savory. It's very enjoyable, right? But in contrast to that, if you ever had something that lacked it, there's a word we use for that, bland. Now, you don't want to be a bland person. But it's what we'd say of something that doesn't have enough salt. And here's the point. People who trust in Jesus are noticed by the world, all right? We are flavor to the world. We're an influence in, in the world, or we should be, according to Jesus. So what would happen if we weren't different, i.e., weren't salty? What, what would happen? We would add flavor, and we would be worthless, just, just sort of what Jesus says here, right? Like there's no salt in the soup, which if that was the case, we wouldn't eat it. Um, I was in a preaching collective this last week, and just so some of you don't know, we have a, a, um, a gathering of all the pastors that teach in the Redemption 10 congregation world every Wednesday, okay? So we gather at one of the campuses, and uh, we unpack or work on the passage that we're going to teach 10 days away. So this week was for next Sunday, right? And so this study was a week ago, Wednesday. And we were in the middle of this and very familiar passage and you got some struggles when you're dealing with familiar passages because you stop thinking really about things you're familiar with. And I just asked a question because there seems to be a really strange thing that Jesus suggests in here. If the salt has lost its saltiness. And I asked the question, I said, does anybody in here, have anybody ever had an experience of salt losing its saltiness? And they all just stared at me. One guy did say, are you calling Jesus a liar? And... No would be the answer to that. But I, I'm 55 years old, and every container of Morton salt I've ever had, no matter how long it's been in the cupboard, you pull it down, and it tastes like what? Salt, just as good as the day you bought it. It might be a little chunky, but it still works, right? Okay, sodium chloride is always sodium chloride, period. So what is Jesus talking about here? Losing its saltiness, okay? Um, there is something that can happen to salt. So let me go back to the... Soup illustration and make it stick. If I had the perfect bowl of soup and all the ingredients, everything you loved was in it, right? The appropriate amount of cheese. Cheese fixes everything. Cheese. Um, if you like potatoes, it's in it. All that stuff is perfect. Salt was perfect. You love this soup. Let's say you take that same bowl of soup and you put it at the bottom of a 10-quart stock pot and you dump in three gallons of water. And I say, do you try? Try the soup. What do you think? What would you say? Bland at best. You probably wouldn't taste any of the ingredients at all, and you probably wouldn't taste any salt. 
And, and here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the point. Whenever the disciples of Jesus dilute themselves to such a point they don't make a difference, Jesus says you're worthless. So how, how do we dilute ourselves? You probably already know, don't you? When we start adding the world to our life. Some of us throw our Christian life into a big bucket and we start adding ingredients from outside. And we wonder why we've lost our influence, why our faith is a little dry, why we don't sense the Holy Spirit moving, we can't hear him very much. It's because we've added things. A little bit of selfishness, a little bit of love of money, a little bit of sex outside of marriage, a little pornography, a little bit of drugs, a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of coveting, a little bit of anger, a little bit of ranting and raving at the political world and all the hopes lost in the candidates, a little bit of taking and not giving, a little bit of fear, a little bit of independence, a Lone Ranger Christian, a little bit of self-indulgence, and you get bland. This is what Jesus says. Christian, okay, I want you to lean in. Y'all are salt. You are. He's made you. He's remade you. He's formed you. He's empowered you. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. When you start to dilute yourself with the things that he doesn't love, you become worthless. Nobody can taste you. Nobody can perceive Jesus in you. You make no impact. Nobody cares. You know why? Because you look like everything else. You just kind of status quo. You've added the world's ingredients and there's nothing special anymore, Don't, no distinct flavor. So that's the first thought that Jesus throws down to describe us. We're salt, we're all salt. So, so don't make the mistake of diluting your flavor to the point of being worthless. Let's get to the second illustration, verses 14 through 16. Jesus uses another comparison here for us as Christians and he uses the idea of light. Let me go back to verses 14 through 16 so we get it back in our minds. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Y'all are light. Same thing, same thing he's saying again. Everybody is light. It's an indicative statement. So this is also not very hard to understand what he's saying. Here's the main point. According to Jesus, Christians are to be visible and to illuminate. We do light. That's what he says here. Sounds a little bit different, to be honest, if you were to take and capture the thoughts or the, let's say, the emotional reaction to the first paragraph. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who persecuted. That person has a shape in my mind. Like if I were to define him, he would be kind of a small person terrified of the effects of everybody else. And so you would, might think after that first little lesson that people would run and hide, right? I mean, it, it makes sense at least. And many people have taken that approach to to being in the world. Go build a commune somewhere. Let's build a wall somewhere. Let's hide somewhere. Let's keep ourselves safe somewhere because they hate us. They hate Jesus in us and so we're afraid of that. Let's go hunker down and many have done that but Jesus says just the opposite here. We're not to hide from the world but we're to be in it but not of it. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? When he's praying to the Father for us is what he says, God, don't take them out of the world but keep them from the evil one. 
They're not of the world. As you sent me into it, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christians don't hide themselves in safe places. We penetrate the darkness with the light of Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus says about it. Y'all are light. He's called us to do that. And Jesus refers to himself as light of the world. We are to be a representative of that light. We are to be like a lamp on a stand, he says, that serves a purpose, that illuminates and exposes things. So, okay, there's a couple questions that came to my mind I think we have to deal with here. How do you shine the light, and what is the light you shine? Make sense? Make certain that we, we know what those are. How? A lot of people have suggested how the church is supposed to shine the light. Now, please don't feel judged if I mention yours, okay? Because I'm not suggesting it's wrong. I'm just probably suggesting that it's not what Jesus said, okay, which is different. Some people have suggested the way to shine your light is to be um, involved in social action, which is good. Um, Some people have suggested that part of shining the light or what he means here is preaching good sermons, and clearly I vote for that, but... um, Some people would say, no, shining your light is standing on the street corner with a bunch of tracks and making certain everyone knows what you stand for. Some people would say it's how you use your vote or how you parent your kids or how you take care of your grass. I mean, there's a lot of reasons how people would say this is what it means to shine your light, but that's not what he says here. Look at verse 16, and you tell me what he's talking about. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? What? Good Good works. Good works. You have to connect these two. Your light shining is a direct reference to the good works that he uses in that phrase. They're the same. Light shining and good works is what he means. Your faith in Jesus is king of your life. According to Jesus, is made most visible, most visible by how you live your life. If, if you want people to know about the Savior then Jesus says how you do your faith is how they'll see it. Not necessarily taking activation to such a degree that they can't can't help but know what you stand for. It's like how you live, your good deeds, your good deeds. That's what Jesus says. Here's what James says. You show your faith by your works, James 2. It's what Paul implied in, in Ephesians 2 that you were saved for. You're the handiwork of God created to do good works. The plan of God before the foundations of the world to see that you would do the, these good things. And by the way, the word good, you've got to understand what it means. It means attractive, beautiful, winsome, lovely, and pleasing to the eye. Every time it's used, that's kind of what it means. A beautiful work, an attractive work. It means that somebody else has to assess it and find it so, right? Not just you, like you, that was a good work. I made them know what I was thinking. It's a good work, Lord. No, 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 it's got to be winsome to others, attractive to others. In other words, Jesus says that people be attracted by the beauty in, the, in your life, the way you live it out, the way you care for one another, the way you serve one another, not one another the way you don't put, like, your hope in the wrong things. I had a, a really intense moment this week, I thought, with, with one of the folks that go to our church here. Um, he's a friend of mine, and he just lost his wife to cancer. And all he was doing was sharing how he feels. And there was a lot of tears, by the way, but I thought to myself at the moment, that's a good work. Because pain's real, loss is real, but his suffering is transformed. Because he suffers as one who has hope. 
you understand? Like there are tears, but Jesus is still Lord. There are tears, but there's still a heaven to gain. There are tears, but there's still things that matter. And I thought, if he just talks, if he just talks about his life now, even in the midst of his pain, the world will look at him and say, man, there's something different about that guy. Because he doesn't grieve as one who has no hope. You understand? And I thought, well, that's a wonderful depiction of how we are to live a beautiful life. You wouldn't pick that, would you? You wouldn't pick the beauty of suffering well as a, an attractive picture, but it is. The world suffers without hope. They got no clue. They try to fix it on their own. But the church, the church, we get to do it different. We don't try to even the score on all business deals. We don't have to make ourselves come out on top. We don't do those things. We don't, we don't treat people um, poorly. We treat people better than ourselves. That's according to Jesus. And he says they'll see it and they'll be drawn to it. Now, let me emphasize something here that I think is really important. I'll just declare it. I'm into preaching, okay? I'm all for preaching. Right? Um, I, I think we should be totally unashamed in declaring the gospel. In fact, I don't think anybody can get saved apart from the Holy Spirit opening his heart to hear it and someone, God using someone to tell them that there's forgiveness in Christ. I think that has to happen for us to come to Christ. So I'm all for the spoken word. I'm all for preaching. I'm all for those conversations. But do you notice that Jesus says in this verse, live your lives so that they can see? Do you see that? He could have said, he could have said, so that they can hear your great sermons. Preach in such a way that they can't be, you know, confused, hear your great sermons, or, or they go to your great churches. After all, you got a wonderful campus, and your music's amazing. So do all that stuff in such a way that they'll come to your churches, or, the, or that they'll read your great books, or understand your deep theology, or read your statements of faith. Jesus could have said all that, but he didn't. What did he say? So that they would see your good works. Sometimes we get this backwards. We're more impressed with the things we do. These ancillary things that God has said, listen, whatever. But I'll transform you, and they'll find it attractive. I'll change how you see things, and they'll find it attractive. I might not take you out of the pain and suffering, what I consider normal in this world, but I'll change how you respond to it, and they'll find it attractive. The way you live your life, They'll see it, according to Jesus. And I think it's interesting here, Jesus also gives us what will happen if, if they see those things. Here's the first thing, the end of verse 16. Two things happen. Here's the first one. They give credit to God. Isn't that awesome? You and I do the shining, God gets the glory. Who would vote yes for that? I would. Just shine it, and God gets the glory. And here's why that happens, because light doesn't call attention to itself. That's not the purpose of light. Uh, at night, if you uh, happen to show up on campus, I think our building's really cool looking, and because it's metal clad, I think it really, you know, it shines well. And you can come out at night, and I suppose, and see these lights we put on the building. But my guess is you're going to look at the building, not the lights, right? That's what a light's for. Light illuminates, light exposes, light, light reveals something other than itself. And that's what light is intended to do, just like we shine what? We reflect Jesus. People see the good work in us and glorify our Father in heaven. There's another thing that happens if we live our lives in such a way and shine this light. And I'm going to steal this from one of the illustrations I read uh, this week. But do you know the name Robert Louis Stevenson? 
A lot of you do, writer, long gone, but he wrote Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, right? Um, so we're familiar with his writing. Here's the story of his life, which I find very interesting in a phrase that he captured so many years ago. He was uh, a really sick kid, supposedly, and he didn't go out to play. He couldn't go out to play. He had to stay home and stay inside, but he watched all his friends play out in the street through the front window. And this afternoon, he was sitting there, and the nurse is taking care of him. He's watching his friends play, and the lamplighter back in that day would come by and light the gas lamps on the street, right? And the nurse came up to him and said, what are you doing, Robert? What are you looking at? And he says, I'm watching the man knock holes in the darkness. I thought, well, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great picture of what we're supposed to do, right? Our world, I don't have to tell you, no surprise, it's in darkness, it is self-perpetuating its own pain every day. Deeper and deeper and dumber and dumber decisions that hurt and hurt themselves over and over again. And here's our calling. We've been commissioned by God to go into Gilbert, go into Arizona, and punch holes in the darkness with our life. We just do that. How you do your business and how you buy your food and how you take care of your health, you just punch holes in the darkness everywhere so they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How do we do it? We give generously to needs. We control our anger and our lies and our lust. We trust God in difficult times. We take care of the sick. We feed the hungry. We visit the imprisoned. We adopt a child. We make sacrifices in our life and we reach out to our neighbor and on and on and on and on it goes. Someone said this a long time ago and it's, it's so old and familiar. It's on the corny side of things. But you might remember, and I think it makes the point, if it were against the law to be a Christian, would they arrest you? And if they did and you went to trial, could they find enough evidence to convict you? I mean, I suppose in a really kind of very familiar, maybe corny way, that's sort of what I think the conviction of this passage does. Like, God has transformed me, not just to save me for heaven tomorrow, but to make me different today. And so Jesus says, y'all, y'all are light and you're salt. What kind of influence are you going to have? What difference are you going to make? What will people see? What will they recognize? Who will they give glory to? That's what Jesus is calling us to. So he's changed us, he's transformed us, but it requires something from us. If we're really going to see... Um, the difference that this transformation makes in others, if they're going to see Jesus, if they're going to, they're going to uh, give the glory to the Father, then it requires that we stop deluding ourselves. Now, stop for a second. This is where I hope the Holy Spirit's teaching because I, I don't illustrate well. I have a list in my mind of the ways I dilute myself. It would be absolutely pointless to go through a passage like this and leave here not at least having something in our minds. That's one of them. What would be the point? What would be the point? We should just sing more songs, enjoy each other's company, get some coffee and get out of here, right? But the Holy Spirit wants to say something to the church. And if there's ever an accusation that could be made at the modern church, it could be this. You look like everybody else. It's true, isn't it? We care for the same things and we follow the same things and we love the same things many times, many times too closely. So just do yourself a favor. I know, I can see it in your face. You love Jesus. Don't leave here today without asking him, God, show me the one way, at least one way that I've deluded myself and then have him work on it because he's good at that, right? He's great at that. 
Let me, uh, let me finish with a quote from Sinclair Ferguson because I think he says it well. Fulfilling this plan will demand that our whole, the whole of our lives be wholeheartedly and unceasingly devoted to him and his service. That devotion will cost us everything. But surely those who are the light of the world will give nothing less for him who gave everything for us, who is a light that the darkness can never overcome. That's what he's called us to, in his power to go do good works and flavor the world with Jesus. Does it make sense? Let's pray for his help. Lord God in heaven, um, I love, I love how much you care for us. I love that in the precision of your instructions, You've also described us and, and how we are affected by Jesus. That Jesus says, there is no command to be light, no command to be salt, but that we are. The question is, what kind? So I pray for us, Lord, that we would be ever increasingly more like Jesus. That maybe next week or next month or next year, we'd have more influence, more flavor in our world than we have right now that God, our good works, would be the kind of works that would look beautiful and attractive to the world that's watching. And then, Lord, if you'd give us the opportunity to tell them it's Jesus, I pray that he'd come to know him. Lord, thank you for some, the precision of, of a passage like this and how it transforms us. We, we ask for your Holy Spirit to go to work even now before we leave. We pray in his name. Amen.